I want to acknowledge the, the presence here tonight of uh, Bishop Julian Dobbs, who is an office mate here and associated with Barnabas Aid, <clears throat> which is one of the premier organizations to help persecuted Christians. You'll see information out there on it. And I also want to point out that uh, there are several leaflets on the table about Sister Diana's organization of the Nineveh Relief, Nineveh Relief Organization. I just want to point out for those of you who saw earlier invitations that Father Bonoka was not able to come because of an emergency that arose in uh, northern Iraq. Not, unfortunately, an infrequent thing. Please join me in turning off your cell phone ringers. And now I, I have the pleasure of telling you that we have the honor of having Congressman Frank Wolf to introduce our guest tonight. Uh, you, you all know Congressman Wolf from his 17 <coughs> terms in the U.S. Congress, where in the House of Representatives he was known as the conscience of the House and the greatest champion of uh, religious freedom and against the persecution of Christians even today. His good work there continues because Chris Smith has a bill before Congress now, the Frank Wolf International Religious Freedom Act. Please join me in welcoming Congressman Wolf. Well, thanks, Sister Diana, for taking the time to come to visit us here in the United States in a very difficult time. It was just a week or two ago she can explain where her village was liberated from the control of, of ISIS. Sister Diana runs uh, a camp over in a very difficult region. Sister Diana runs two clinics where they treat roughly 300 people every, every single day. Sister Diana runs a series of kindergartens for, for, for young people. And they do so many other really very important things in a very difficult area. And interesting enough, all of the nuns uh, that Sister Diana worked with speak Aramaic, the same language as, as Jesus. Before the war broke out, uh, there were 1.5 million Christians living in Iraq. Today, the number is anywhere from 250,000, or some say only 200,000. There is a saying in the Middle East, first the Saudi people, and then the Sunni people, the Saudi people, the Jewish community. In 1948, the population of the Jewish community in Iraq was 148,000. When I was in Iraq, I said, how many Jewish people are living here? And they said, Mr. Wolf, maybe about 10 elderly individuals. And one person said, it may only be four. More biblical activity took place in Iraq than any other country other than Israel, Abraham, uh, Ur, Daniel's buried in Iraq, Ezekiel's buried in Iraq, uh, uh, ISIS blew up Jonah's tomb about a year, a year and a half ago. And a group called Aid to the Church in Need put out a notice a couple of weeks ago where they said, as a result of this exodus, Christianity is on course to disappear from Iraq within possibly five, five years. In 1 John 3, 17, 18, it says, but if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Let us not love in word or speech, but in deed or in truth. And Dr. King said in that speech, the Birmingham uh, jail speech, he said, in the end, we will remember not the words of our enemies, but we'll remember uh, the silence of our, our friends. And German Lutheran pastor, anti 
not to distant and deep upon her. For the silence in the face of evil is evil itself. Not to speak is to speak and not to act in that is to act. So hopefully by Sister Diana's visit and your coming here, we in the United States will speak, but we'll also act in order to save Christianity and the cradle of Christendom and in the process also the Yazidis and the other religious minorities who are going through a very difficult time. I'm gonna give you somebody who I think, frankly, will be nominated for the Nobel uh, Peace Prize, Sister Diana. Just to say a word about Mr. Wolf. He is, Mr. Wolf is the one who introduced the world to our plight. It was in 2014, August 6, where ISIS driven us out of our homes in the middle of the night. And during that time, it was the, the Gaza events too, and there was nothing in the news, international news at all, about the entire Nineveh plane that was forced to leave by ISIS. Nothing covered in the media. And previously I've met Mr. Wolf at his office with my prior sister, Maria Hanna. So I said to a friend of mine who works uh, for Samaritan Purse, I need to do something. I need to get our voice someplace far. He said, who do you want? I said, I want to reach Mr. Wolf because I know he has the passion. He can't talk about this. He said, okay, I know friends who is gonna connect me to him. Believe it or not, it was, I think, August 13th, 12th or 13th, they connected me to Mr. Wolf. They called me from his office. Is this Sister Diana? This is Sister Mr. Wolf. It's like, yes. I told him, this is what's happening. He said, really? And he promised me to come, but during his office, he was not able for some reason. But he said, Sister Diana, I promise you, as soon as I retire, I will be there the first week. Believe it or not, first week of January, Mr. Wolf was in Erbil. You know, I feel that God's, God was with us when he sent Mr. Wolf. He, he came, people loved him so much because they feel that we were supported. He came with Marty, he came with a group of football force with Luan, no, not Luan, it was uh, Elise and Elijah. So he came with us, he said, I wanna see we took him to the camps to see the situation of the Christians, what was happening to them. After he came back, he was on the media and people started contacting us. We want to see how can we help. So thank you for that. Thank you, Mr. Wolf, really. And I'm here because of him and Marty too. They kept saying, you should come. I said, I'm not coming this time. It's like, yes, you should come. And one word from him made me come. And he said, this is an Esther moment. And it just, you know, stayed in my heart and reflected on it. Thanks for that. I'm not Sister Diana here. I represent my congregation, the Dominican Sisters of St. Catherine. I represent every Christian in Iraq. Don't look at me as Sister Diana. No, I'm every Christian in Iraq who has been 
persecuted, who has been driven out of their homes in no time. You have not maybe heard the story, maybe you've read some of, you know, the stories from media, watched media or newspaper, but to live the reality is completely different, completely. When we heard of ISIS in Syria, we thought this is not gonna to happen to us. It's only, you know, across the border in other country. We've never expected this gonna happen. But on August 3rd, when ISIS got to Sinjar and then to Bashika and then start moving slowly and people start leaving, we've thought it's not that dangerous, but then we realized ISIS group, the Islamic State of Iraq and Sham, is not an easy group. It's, it's targeting all the minorities. So it started with Mosul when they started asking people, you have three choices, otherwise you live to convert to Islam, to pay Al Jizya, or you, know, or, or you leave, or we'll kill you. So of course, because of our faith, most of us, we chose to follow our savior than to stay and convert to Islam by force, you know. The journey wasn't easy at all. When we left, people start leaving in my hometown that's called Karakosh early from 10 o'clock because there was a fighting on the border between ISIS and the army. So people were afraid that their kids could get hurt, so they start leaving. For us as a church, we made sure not to leave because we are responsible for people. Until 11 p.m., we saw that the danger was approaching us. So we were told you should leave because ISIS is very close. We made sure that most people has left already and we were almost the last people that to leave down. Unfortunately, few that they were asleep, they could not feel the danger, so we, we had over than 300 hostages under ISIS that we, they were able to, we were able to liberate them step by step, but we still have a few left under their control, their captivity. So how did we live away from our homes? It's not, those days were very difficult and Marty, Mr. Wolf, when they came, they saw Christians, they are, you know, the creator of civilization. We built the civilization in Iraq. We have been in Iraq from first century when St. Thomas passed by through Iraq and his uh, disciples, Teddy and Mary. So that's when we, be, we were Christians from first century. So we were not the sit second citizen people that we came after, no. And during, from the seventh century, we experienced persecutions 
from the south of Iraq, and then Christians were driven in the 7th century to the middle of Iraq. And now, in the, 12, in the 21st century, we were driven from the middle of Iraq into the up north of Iraq. And we don't know what last stage is going to be. Mr. Wolf said it well that Christians were 1 million point five in Iraq, and then now they are 200 thousand, maybe in five years there will be zero Christians in Iraq. So the cradle of Christianity could die in Iraq. And this is, this is very critical. Are we going to let Christianity die in Iraq? Why would die? Because we don't feel safe anymore. Our homes when ISIS took our homes, we thought, okay, it's going to be a while and we're going to go back and we're going to continue our life. But apparently what happened, we waited for liberation for over two and a half years. During these two and a half years, I would say if it wasn't the Western church in the U.S. and in the Europe, Christian could not survive. Lots of NGOs, international NGOs that they came, supported us with food and non-food items. They helped us to move from tents into containers into and some organization that helped with renting homes where four or five families living in one home. Now we have over than 1,200 families are living in container, about 6,000 people. The rest are living in homes, rented homes, that imagine if you have one home, in each room there's a family living, so there's no privacy, there is nothing, like children cannot study because they don't have their own room. That's one thing. The other thing is education has been interrupted for our children because during these two and a half years, we didn't have a school, we didn't have curriculum, we have teachers, our children want to go to school. So we are used to education because we feel education nourishes us, helps us to build the culture, to continue to be so strong. So the first few months we organized, we rented homes. We rented homes, we found every empty building. We started education there because we did not want our children to be without education. For college students, we have over than 4,000 college students. They have no place to go. Then they got hosted in Kirkuk. Some went to the Hawk. Some stayed without the school. So that's why we start worrying about the future of Christians. What's next? If we cannot get proper education, if we cannot feel safe where we are, what's next? The other thing is healthcare, you know, because all the infrastructure in our hometowns, you know, were looted and destruct, destruct, destroyed. The capacity where we, we were in, in the Kurdistan region, we're talking about over than 120,000 people. It's not easy to go to a different town, so to cover everything. So that was another problem where people should go, and that's where 
we started as church all together working. Some they took care of education, some they took care of uh, uh, healthcare, some they took care of humanitarian aid. So we kind of divided our work so our people could, you know, have this hope. The reason that the church has been working so hard because we did not want the people to leave. But lots of families have left when after one month, second month, they found there's no future in Iraq for them. However, we were praying so hard that liberation will take a place. We're gonna go back. So, but, but the big shock for us was when liberation took a place, we were so happy we're gonna go back to see our churches, to see our homes, to see whatever we have left. But what do you think we have? So, you have no idea. We thought, okay, you, they might be, our homes might be looted, that's fine. Okay, we'll work hard, we'll furnish them, we'll start the life. But it wasn't like that. It's ISIS showed who they are, and even I see what they did, it's not the act of a human beings at all. Even beasts do not do things like that. As soon as we entered our villages and towns, the first thing we saw, they have burned more than half of the towns, burned them badly. And I'm gonna show you some photos. They looted them. There is no house left with stuff on it at all, with furniture. They've taken everything they wanted, everything. They destroyed them. They destroyed so many. Some, it has been destroyed through the airstrikes, some by bombs. The other thing, and you know, the worst thing is to enter into your house and you find tunnels dug in your house that is, you know, they're measure five to X seven meters or 10 meters. You won't believe it. And these tunnels are connected to somewhere else in other villages. You keep walking there, like there. One of the tunnels they discovered is two, 22 kilometers that reached to Mosul. Other one, there are some, some they are, you won't believe me, but they are the size of this room the size of this room. So, if we are asked, do you wanna go back? This is our land, this is where we grew up. This is where we worship. This is where we got educated. This is where, you know, we have every beautiful memory. Do, do we wanna go back? Yes, but the question will be, how could we go back if things are destroyed, burned? Place is not totally secure. Who would take his kids into a house that has a tunnel? Right? So, I think now Christians are more afraid than before because everything they have, they count on, does not exist anymore. And it's not only that, the big shock for me was when I entered my family's house, it was completely burnt. And I said, okay, I just wanted something that ISIS did not reach, the cemetery. Can you believe even the cemetery? 
did not survive from them. They opened the graves. At one village called Karmles, there was uh, a corpse of one of the priests. They took his skeleton and hang it in, in the town. And some are missing. They let the, uh, the grave open. Their bodies are missing. In my hometown, when I visited the cemetery, the church is all put down. There's nothing in the church all. Like you just, it's all rubbish. You don't see anything. The tombs are open, all. So I've said, okay, you've destroyed the houses. You've destroyed because we did not stay. This is the kind of revenge you're, you know, you're do paying us. But what did the dead do to you? I mean, I think these are not the acts of human beings. I was watching a report on discovery showing even the wild animals do not do that. They do have some mercy in their heart. But to see this kind of thing, never, I don't think humanity has experienced this beastness of human beings. It's, it's really, really bad, and I can't show you. This is Immaculate Conception Church. This is considered one of the biggest church in the Middle East. Completely burned. What happened? They collected all the benches. There were over than 3,000 benches. Burned them, so you see. And the chemical elements that they have used, it, it, like when something burns, okay, the smell goes after a few days. After one month, you cannot even breathe when you get into the church because the kind of the chemical that has been used they still under test, we don't know, but some they call it like, they use phosphor. Some others, they use some other chemicals that is really dangerous for the environmental health. So Where this, this in Karakosh, yes, Immaculate Conception Church. So the main concern for us is the environmental health. How can we go back if, you know, most of, like I would say, 60% of the houses have been burned like this, 60%. And about maybe 35% have been destroyed, and the rest, it's, you know, between looted and destroyed. So this is the church. This is the church in Bartolo. You don't see the, because it's all black. It's the same thing. They've burned everything inside it, even the floor you see, it has, you know, the piles have lifted because of, be, some they say the fire was about three and four days. Actually, these, they did not, they did not burn it like last year or year before, just before the liberation, they collected so many tires when we entered our hometown, my hometown and others. You see tires along the way, hundreds and hundreds of tires of, you know, cars and trucks tires. So when we entered to this church, honestly, we could not breathe at all too. So you can see. And this church was renovated in 2005, I believe. This one as well. And if you see, how did they break all the crosses? You don't see any cross left 
on the uh, on any church at all, even at in the you know in our houses when we they have left no uh, like no picture of Our Lady, no crosses, nothing at all. Besides, they they have writings. You a crusader, we're gonna kill you, and this is your end. And you know they've written so many threat, you know things on our walls and our homes and in the churches as well. This is some of the destruction. This is in Bartola, actually, the town of Bartola. This is the chapel in our convent in Bartola. See if you see they've you know tried to break the cross they if they did not destroy it or burn it they you know they looted and kind of uh, took whatever is value in there and this building it's the city council building it's right in front of our convent you as you see there's nothing left apparently a day before the liberation, uh, according to eyewitness, that there was a huge truck filled with bombs, you know. So it damaged this building as well as it damaged our convent totally. This is one of the writing at our church, uh, St. John's Church. It says, you know, as they say, in the name of God, the merciful mercy, uh, Islamic State, uh, will... Is will stay against the alliance, uh, the crusader. It's like, you know, even their, their Arabic is not correct. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, we have a hard time reading it. <laughs> yeah, it, it says it stays uh, with, uh, you know, with the blood of the, you know, the those who, Mujahideen, as we call it, those who kill him themselves. This is our convent where I, where I lived. So it's uh, not only destroyed, when we entered into our rooms, nothing has been left at all. I lived in the U.S. and I had at least 300 books. I. I wasn't sad at anything I lost just for my books when I entered. Like, what did it do with my with our books and everything we have? What happened was there's a square, you know, at the church square. They took all the books that we have, and they burned it to blur the vision of the airstrikes when they were, you know, fighting. This is my family's house. You can see there's no window. There's no doors, there's nothing. So uh, that was my first time getting into the house. It's like, you know, I didn't know, shall I laugh? Shall I feel sad? Kind of, you know your feelings. It's like you don't know what to feel at all. You get numb. And most of the houses are like this. The ones are burned. So when, we are, when they ask us, do you want to go back? Okay, yes. Shall my dad live in this house? How? First of all, it's not healthy. Second, it's gonna need to be renovated, but it's not easy to renovate it because the material that has been used, you cannot just peel it and paint it. You have to take it all down and start a new house. So if the families with low income, or most of the families, because they left and 
left everything behind and they barely can survive. How they can go back if they don't find help? However, if there is no security, number one, how can we go back? The truth is, who did this to us was not only ISIS, was our neighbors. The surrounded areas and so many documents were founded. So many documents, names. And from eyewitnesses, two women who survived and they found them when the liberation happened. So one of them said, they were asking me, where's the house of this man and that man? Those people who used to come to our schools, you know, to our healthcare system where we treated them, they are the same people who turned against us and looted our homes and burned them and destroyed it and turned against And uh, How can we trust them again? It's impossible, you know? No matter what you do, it's impossible. So many stories told by people who were living in Mosul, the neighbor will say to his Christian neighbor, you should leave now because I want to take your home. If you don't leave, I'm going to kill you. So people, and they did not let them take any belongings with them. They left with nothing. So how can we go and live in Mosul again with our neighbor who said, leave? How can we live with our neighbors who were living with us in Karakosh and surrounding area and in Bartola and in Kermles and go live with them again? It's, it's hard. It's hard to gain that trust anymore. If you notice in this church, see the tower, totally destroyed. And the, they broke the crosses. We have eight churches in only Karakosh. If you see, they are in terrible condition, terrible. Burnt, looted, crosses <coughs> has been taken down. Besides that, it's not only that, what they did is they used the church square as a targeting training children and training their men how to kill. This is how they desecrated our churches. You see, um, yester uh, yesterday, it was Monday, sorry, uh, through CBN, uh, they, they came to Iraq and we went to Karakosh for eight hours. Chris Mitchell has did really a nice segment about everything that happened. He showed everything that happened. So it's online on Facebook, CBN. So it gives more details about how the destruction took place. And you see the houses, you see it like, oh, this is really simple. But as you see my family's house, when I saw this, I said, this is really easy, we can't fix it. But when you get, get inside, you see it's totally destroyed. Even the fence are melted. This is the tower. But when we were there, I don't know, sometimes I love to see signs of hope. We cannot lose hope, right? If you notice what's in, we were up and I saw that uh, the uh, vision standing there. It's like, wow, you know, this tells something. This tells something. God is always present. And when the Holy Spirit descended to Christ, it was through, you know, like a dove. And that was a sign for me, honestly. As a sister, as a believer, I found it as a sign of hope. So 
I do pray. I do pray that tower will be rebuilt again. I do pray that the church will be glorified again with the prayers. A mass was said right after the liberation in the midst of the burning and, you know, all that destruction. The bishop and people went and celebrated mass there to bring the spirit of God after that church was detested. This is the one of the tunnels, one of the tunnels. See how deep it is. And this, you know, this is in Karimlesh. It's There's a shrine, St. Barbara Shrine. Um, they have four of them. They are so deep that they tried to close them. It's impossible <laughs> because they are huge. This one, I don't know, they said it was four of uh, X6, I think, or seven. When I looked at it, I got dizzy. And what they did when they did this one, they took all the, you know, what you call it, the dirt, and closed the rest of the, you know, the shrine. And the, uh, we have volunteers, they worked for 15 days taking the dirt out of uh, the, you know, the shrine and they broke half of the tomb of St. Barbara. And that shrine belongs to centuries ago. I don't have the date exactly, but it's so old that's on a small, tail, uh, small hell, uh, hill. So, I mean, this is dangerous. What we think, okay, people want to worship, but we don't know how safe these tunnels will be. Only in Karakosh, they discovered up to now 100 tunnels. They have not gone into one house to another yet. So what kind of things we're gonna, you know, see there? Besides, see, this is a church, how they, you know, actually they bombed the, the tower and they break the cross, broke the cross, but what happened when we went, the first thing that, you know, the soldiers, MPU, the uh, Nineveh Protection Unit with the army, they went, the first thing they made, and with the priests, they were priests with them, when they went to see the situation, they put the cross, because this is our sign, you know? So they put that cross there to say that life will come back to this town, hopefully. These are the markets where people used to make livelihood for their lives. All of them along this street, all has been burned, looted, some destroyed. I could not include all the pictures and some destroyed. So how could people now go back if they have nothing left in there? Always they have been asking this question. This is the a uh, square of the church. See how they made it? The target, uh, you know, square for them. And they destroyed it, really. It's, when you see it, it was so beautiful, and now all what you see, it's rubbish there. In this area, there's about 15 houses that has been totally destroyed. Uh, next to this house, there is, uh, a woman who is my friend when she was in Jordan, 
she could not live in Jordan. She loves her home a lot that she said, I'm coming back. Before the liberation, in four days, I believe. And after the liberation, when they posted photos, she saw her home has been airstriked. She went back. I mean, her story is so moving. She looked around, she said, some people came back, they could find a photo as a memory for their, uh, anything that could relate. She said, I could not get in and find a photo that can get, remind me of my entire family. All what to remind me, she took a stone from her house and said, this is as a memory for what it has been left from my house. So there are lots of stories of people coming back with a broken heart. Imagine you have a beautiful mansion, and when you go back, you don't see, just you see, you know, rubbish or gravel. So, and the problem is, you know, for us as Christians, we've never lived in tents or we're educated people. Like people, you see doctors, you see lawyers, you see engineers, you see teachers, you see all kinds of people, you know, educated. So when you see this town, you don't believe that, you know, you say, this is a message to tell, go away, this is not your land. I mean, how could you give it, can you give it another analysis? For me, I can't, because I come from that area. When I walk in our streets, <coughs> this is this message that I got from them. Otherwise, why would, do they, why would, why would they do this, you know? There's no other explanation. For two and a half years, we left the town. We thought it's going to be fine, but apparently no. So now the shock, people are more traumatized, more shocked as we left in 2014. Anyway, so that was a part of, I just want to show you how ISIS affected us by not leaving anything for us, you know, fi from material things. They are trying to get into our faith, right? When they do this, they try to get us. But I see people still have faith. People continue to have hope. So many, they say, if we get help, we'll go back, we'll rebuild. And so many, they are going back to clean their homes trying to you know do what they can but it's not easy to take this step now if things are not clear when the liberation happened we found so many things we found clothes that in each house families would say this is not our clothes so there were apparently strangers living there who they were we cannot identify now there are so many evidence for things that were not supposed to be in our town. Uh, in some places, they found, some families found their homes has been turned into a factory of weapons. Some, they found bodies, parts of bodies there. So there are so many things in our towns and villages. In, our in, in some homes, as you know, there were 3,000 Yazidis women missing. We don't know if they were there or not. 
So there are a missing puzzle there that we need to find the pieces, but we cannot find them by ourselves. We're going to need help to find those pieces and put them together, I believe. So three things that we really need for this. We're going to need security for Christians to save the cradle Christianity in Iraq. If they don't feel secure, they cannot go back. And they won't, really, they won't feel secure and take their children if they don't have something, you know, as tangible to tell them, you're going to be fine, you're going you're gonna to be safe. Second, to live in such an environment, it's not healthy at all, even if it's rebuilt. Third, all the evidence need to be examined, I think, to see what happened, you know. We have the right to know what happened for our towns and villages and our churches, our homes, our institutes, our hospitals, everything that we worked so hard. Those homes, families worked 20, 30 years to build it. There was a teacher, he got into his house, was totally burned. He said, my student, those who I taught them, burnt my house that it took me 30 years to build it. How would you react to such a story? This is one of them. Or a widow who stands in front of her house with her children crying, this is all what I have. What should I do now? So I think this is, or I do believe this is a very difficult time for us. We're going to need lots of support, more than before the displacement. This is, this is the time that we do need help. How? It's not easy to say. <coughs> Many people want to go back. Some, they don't feel they want to go back. They want to find a better future for their children for themselves. As church, we try to do the best that we can to keep people hopeful, to keep ourselves hopeful and believe that since one of Jesus Christ's disciples went through that land, we feel that Jesus wants that spirit to continue in that land. How can we keep it? We ask our question, ourselves this question every single day. The church on Sunday, you see them filled with people, praying, calling to God for protection, for safety, for strong faith. How long th this would last? You know, one trauma after another, one persecution after another. How much can a human being carry, you know? We earn for a normal life. We don't live a normal life, and we cannot say we do no live a normal life. I th think since I was born, I've never experienced a normal life. Iran war, sanction, Gulf war, US war. And the worst of all, ISIS. And what ISIS is, is it people that they did this 
I think it's more. It's about the ideology. Children that they are coming from Mosul that they have been liberated. One of the children said, they, he was asked, what did you learn at school? What do you think? In math class, he was taught one dead body plus one dead body equal two dead bodies. One bullet plus one bullet equal two bullets. The infidels in Arabic, the class in Arabic, I didn't post it here, I have it. It says, the infidels deserve to be slaughtered. This is an Arabic class. So, if you teach your children this, how, do, how would they grow up? And at the end of each curriculum, there is a weapon, a gun, or some kind of. So we need to think deeply who ISIS is. Is it a few people that they came and did this destruction and left? Or is it two and a half years are, I think, it's a long period to teach children to do lots of things, right, at school, from six years to 12 years. So this is the age where you can plan things in the mind of children, and they never get it out because they think this is what they believe in. So if one bullet plus one bullet is equal to, God help us. God help us. And this is not only happening in Iraq. It could happen everywhere. We were the victim. We are the victim. But we don't know, you know. We hear all over Europe, in many places, lots of turmoils happening. So we need to question ourselves now. Are we safe? We, test, we tested suffering, bitterness, and all kinds of things. We continue to be strong because we do believe God has been journeying with us in each day and in each minute. And this is how, from first day, I would like to tell you about our work as church. As Dominican sisters, we thought the first thing we can do is open kindergartens, open schools, so this way we can educate our children to continue have faith, to continue to believe in life. Believing in life is the key to live. So this is what we start doing. We opened the school, we opened four kindergartens, we continue to be with people at the camps day by day, do the worship with them, celebrate mass, do catechism. We did first communion as Catholics, each we have two terms in summer. We have over than 700 children in each year. Uh, we try to do all kinds of things. Why? Because we thought this is how we can strengthen what we have, you know? So we're still working with our community. Uh, as church in general, too, what we did, as you heard of Father Binoka and I, there were hundreds of people at the camp sick. They don't know where to go, no hospitals, nothing. So there was a mother's tent there. With the tent, we started a small unit for medical health. We divided into different parts, and then 
someone came, doctor said, can we volunteer? He said, sure. And looked, we don't have medicine. I said to Father Binoco, let me go and beg. I'm a Dominican. I'm a beggar. That's what St. Dominic was, was a beggar, you know? This is who I am, you know? I follow my founder. That was his spirituality. I went to pharmacies. I said, listen, we're, we were just displaced. We don't have, can you help me? So we got small back with the widow spirit. That's what I call our clinic, how we started with the widow spirit. Yeah. And believe it or not, with that small tent and with this small amount of medicine, God blessed us with so many. And then someone came to me, was a friend of Kevin, his name is Matthew Nowry. He said, sister, how can I help you? It's like, wow, we need medicine, we need so and so. And Samaritan Purse started helping us right away. And then Pontifical Mission, they came, they said, how can we help? They start helping and some other organization. And that's how our clinic, you know, start growing. We start seeing people between 700 to 800 per day. And then, as I said, God blessed us. We became an organization that's named, you're gonna see in the brochure, uh, we called it the Humanitarian Nineveh Organization. That was recognized officially in November of 2015. Uh, we call it because we, it's not only for Christian, but it's all for all minorities. We reach out for all minorities and it's open for everyone. So we have done projects with Yazidis. Those are Yazidis that they are living, it's kind of, it's a slum. Hundreds of Yazidis were living. So we tried to get them food and non-food items and this is our clinic. As I said, it's, we started with a modest tent, and then, you know, it started growing, growing. And if someday you visit us, you're gonna see lots of, you know, logos that's, you know, donated by. So each caravan is donated by some organization. We had German organization, French organization. So see this ecumenical thing, like, really, really I said like God sent people from all over the places we receive people from all over the world. They come to see our work and then they see what kind of work is they support. And this is how we have been able to continue our work serving thousands of people every single month. Like each month we reach the number of, you know, patients reaches to six to seven and 8,000. We open two clinics and we are, you know, we're doing projects where to help youth we're doing some music you know, training, we're doing English courses because some of our youth that they don't have anything to do. So we see like education is a weapon for us. So this is how we educate our children. We're trying to do workshops for them. So that's what our, it's a small organization, but I believe that small things makes a big difference. And this is how I see things and you know, from a different perspective. Cardinal Donald visited us last year, and we were so blessed that, you know, because Kenewa has been supporting us very much, so they like to see our work, and we were so blessed that, you know, he came and saw our work and blessed it as well. This is another clinic in 
a town that's away from Erbil about 20 minutes. Uh, there are about, uh, at this complex, about 1,200 families, 80% uh, are Muslim, 20% are Christians. So you see, I mean, we receive all kinds of patients. So the, the clinic is open, this open door for everyone. We reach out for cacaes as well. We see like what their needs are during summer, during winter. So we do the humanitarian work. And this is the clinic in Ankawa. What we do, it's not only, like we do the primary care for it, like, and, but we have kinds of, you know, we expanded, we started only with the gynecologist and interest, internist and then as I said, God blessed us. We have ultrasound department, we have lab department, dentist, dental department, the pharmacy, uh, pediatrician. Uh, so, okay, it's like, you know, you feel that the widow spirit was not only one part, but God has blessed it so much. And I do believe with small things, we can do lots of things. And this is how I say it doesn't have to be too big. With every penny, we were able to help a family. That's why sometimes I say, sometimes people would say, sister, we don't have much to give you. I say, a penny makes a difference to us. It does. Honestly, it does. And now one of the things, okay. So, this is how our life is about, you know, every single day. People now, they are under a question, what shall we do? If you have any questions, maybe. People before ISIS, they used to own mansions that, you know, worth of million dollars. Uh, they owned so much. And, you know, they owned houses, they owned cars, they owned business. We didn't have poor people or any homeless at all. The poor one could get by with easiness, you know. Uh, if they were not employees, they have, you know, their own business. So life was really, really good for us. And we were living very, I would say, despite of everything, we were living in luxury as a Christians, like we used to work hard. So we used to have everything we wanted. People were getting married, were spending two, three days in party. They were traveling, they were working hard. But after ISIS, you know, because we left with nothing, we left with only our clothes, so we didn't have, people could not restart again. There is hope that if we go back, people are so resilient, they can work, they can start, 
they can rebuild that town and to be better than it was before, but they're gonna need help. They cannot do it by themselves. Yes. Thank you so much for coming. I'm I really hope um, that Arabil is helping you. And it is. Is it helping your organization, Arabil or Karaji government? Does they do any assistance? And second question is, do you have any kind of branch or organization that is working in northern Syria? Because we have a huge community of Christians there right now, too. I'll answer the second question. Um, unfortunately, we don't. We're hoping to expand. As I said, we're new. We just started on August 9th of 2014 to respond to the immediate emergency. And then, as you know, the number of uh, refugees in Erbil, there are over than 120,000. And as I said, there are lots of Yazidis, lots of Syrian come to. Actually, we have employees in, you know, that they are Syrian, that they are working with us too. So we're hoping, we're hoping to reach out, but that's gonna need funds, it's gonna need help. So as I say, we get day by day. So hopefully we pray that someday we're gonna reach out to Syria and other places as well where there are critical, you know, situation and where they need help most. Is there been a lot of discussion of making Nineveh uh, an independent uh, province or uh, governance reform uh, as well as suggestions uh, from the Kurds uh, that they could become independent uh, from a national point of view. Would this situation improve at all in the sense of having local uh, governance to also rebuild? When I grew up, I grew up with, you know, I grew up in Baghdad. One of our neighbors was Sunni and the other Shia, and I was about 14, 15 years. I've never knew who they were, if they were Sunni or Shia. I knew they were our neighbors who were Muslim that we lived in, you know, in peace with them. So I've never experienced to be independent as a Christian. So we always have this sense of community. So I really, if there's a discussion about that, I can't comment on that because I think this is on a higher level than me because all what I do is a humanitarian work. I don't get into things like that. I'd rather to become on spiritual and humanitarian level than to get into other, you know, thoughts. Uh, Sister, how can people uh, here help you? How, how could anyone in the audience tonight or listening on the video, which will be posted on YouTube, how, how do they get to you? How do they get help to you? What's the, I know we have brochures in the next room that may have your address, but perhaps you could say that so that okay. it's recorded on this tape. And As I said, I'm a beggar. I'm St. Dominic's daughter. <laughs> we do need your help. 
we do need to help people that there's something to count on. We do need your help to help us to rebuild, to rebuild. For those who can help with security on their side, they can do this from their angle. For those who can help in rebuilding, we do need your support. As I said, every penny counts. We are hoping, we are preparing projects how to revive the agriculture, to create you know, opportunities for livelihoods for people they, where they can work and make money and go and rebuild. We have so many projects that we're hoping our students to continue their schooling. So as I, as I say, whatever your heart says that you can give, please listen to your hearts. Every penny counts and if you can help you know, Christmas is coming, and always with the Christmas we feel happy and giving, so. In the website, uh, the more, Yeah, more specifically, how, how do they get their pennies to you? Is there a website? Yes, there's a website. Uh, it's on the paper, which is www.hnroirak.org, uh, hnroirak.org. You can go to this website and it will lead you how to donate. If I could uh, end with a, a question um, that, as you say, you're concerned with humanitarian work, but uh, there's going to be a new administration here in Washington, D.C. What would you like to see it do in respect to the problems you face every day? To look at the situation of the Christian from a new angle. The cradle of Christianity in Iraq is disappearing. It is. Just as I said at the beginning, from 1 million point five to 200. What's next? So how can we help helping help the minorities to stay and as I say, the Christian because I'm a Christian. So to raise the awareness that the cradle of Christianity in Iraq needs help. My name is Intifat Kambal, I'm an Iraqi American. <clears throat> like you, I grew up in Baghdad and I went to non-Scaldinia school. <clears throat> Before I ask my question, I just want to express my deepest apology as a Muslim Iraqi to what happened to you. Thank you. Please forgive us. And what has happened to you is a new Holocaust. And every Muslim in Iraq and in the Muslim world should be responsible for this crime. It should be ashamed. My question to you is, you are Iraqis more than we are. You were in Iraq before we came after you. And you are much more patriotic than any Iraqis. Are you going back to your villages what assurances are you seeking, as Mr. Bob said, from this administration, from the international community, to protect you and not let these shameful crimes happen to you again? Again, please forgive us. I would say what happened to Christianity is a genocide. It was declared a genocide, and my message to the new administration Okay, it was declared 
what's next, how you're going to act with the genocide. Christians need to be recognized that all this happened to them. It is a genocide, and they need to hear it not only with words, but also actions. They need to see actions. Great. Thank you.